the Accord and the Advanced Trials. What went wrong with intense glucose lowering in type 2 diabetes? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment on the Accord trial, the Action to Control Cardiovascular Risk in Diabetes trial. I am your host, Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. Joining me today is Dr. John Buse. Dr. Buse is the Professor of Medicine and the Chief of the Endocrinology Division in the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He is also the current President for Medicine and Science of the American Diabetes Association, and he has been the Vice Chair of the Accord Trial Steering Committee. We have been eagerly awaiting the results of the Accord Trial and the Advanced Trial. Both of these trials studied the effects of intense glucose lowering in type 2 diabetes. The trials were presented recently at the American Diabetes Association annual meeting in San Francisco and subsequently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Both of these trials failed to show that intense glucose lowering reduced major cardiovascular events. We have asked Dr. John Buse to help us to understand the results of these trials. Dr. Buse, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. John, let's start by going over the rationale for the ACCORD trial. Can you review the primary hypothesis of this trial? Well, just to back up in time, I think it was in 1998, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute brought together a wide variety of clinical scientists asking the question, you know, what are the major unknown issues in cardiovascular disease in patients with diabetes? About 70 to 80% of people with diabetes will eventually die of cardiovascular disease. And the group basically recognized that there was very little, in a way, known about the interventions that are effective to reduce cardiovascular disease, particularly in 1998. Over the years since then, we've had pretty strong evidence that statin therapy to lower LDL cholesterol is associated with reduced cardiovascular events in patients with diabetes. The evidence with regards to blood pressure lowering is not quite as robust. But with regards to glucose lowering, there never had been a clinical trial primarily aimed at asking the question, does glucose lowering reduce the risk of cardiovascular events in patients with diabetes? What about the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study? Didn't that trial give a hint that glucose lowering had a cardiovascular effect? Right. So the primary endpoint of that study was a combined set of endpoints involving microvascular complications and cardiovascular complications. In that trial, which involved new-onset patients with diabetes, the A1C lowering was about 1%. The period of follow-up was over 10 years, and you know they were able to demonstrate a trend towards a 15 to 16% reduction in cardiovascular endpoints as the secondary endpoint. And then there was a secondary randomization where they looked at overweight patients. And there, the interesting finding was that metformin was associated with a statistically significant reduction in cardiovascular endpoints, again, as a secondary endpoint, more so than insulin or sulfonylurea. So it sort of opened a can of worms in that Overall, there wasn't a statistically significant result on cardiovascular endpoints, though close. I think the p-value was 0.052. But in the sort of more robust results in the overweight patients really indicated that how you lowered glucose might be more important than what glucose level you achieved. 
So because the results of the UK PDS were unclear, was that the impetus for putting the Accord study together? I think that was a major impetus, you know, plus the fact that, you know, now 20% of all healthcare dollars are spent in managing people with diabetes. The bulk of those costs are related to dealing with the complications, and the most important complication, arguably, is cardiovascular disease. What was the primary endpoint that was chosen for the ACCORD trial? Well, the ACCORD trial was a so-called double two-by-two design. So everybody in Accord, just slightly more than 10,000 patients, was randomized to a glucose question, which was basically uh, randomization to an A1C target of less than 6% versus an A1C target of 7 to 7.9% with the expectation the average in that standard group would be 7.5%. There's also a blood pressure and lipid trial in Accord that we can talk about later, The primary endpoint was heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular death. So this was the first trial that used a cardiovascular endpoint, and it sounds like a more traditional cardiovascular endpoint, typical of lipid-lowering trials, as the primary endpoint in this trial, unlike UKPDS and some of the earlier trials? Right. So the only other trial that used a sort of cardiovascular endpoint was the proactive study, you know, pioglitazone versus placebo. There, the primary endpoint was a much longer list of cardiovascular endpoints. So this is really only the second trial, major trial, to have, you know, the sort of classic cardiovascular endpoints. As I recall, the proactive trial also included peripheral vascular treatments and events in the primary endpoint. So it wasn't just heart-related events in that trial. Right. So what was the population that was chosen for the ACCORD study? Was this a typical type 2 diabetes population, or was this a high-risk population? Yeah, this was a a very high-risk population. So you could get into the trial if you were over the age of 55 with diabetes, but it had to be poorly controlled. So you had to have an A1C over 7.5%. You had to have two additional risk factors beyond the poorly controlled diabetes, or you had to have a known cardiovascular disease, and those patients could get in down to an age of 45. And all these patients also had to qualify for the blood pressure of the lipid sub-study, which meant that, you know, they had to have, you know, basically issues with their blood pressure or lipids. So it was a a very high-risk population. So it was either diabetes with multiple risk factors or diabetes with risk factors and known cardiovascular disease? Right. How does that compare to the United Kingdom population? Is this a sicker group than the UK PDS trial? Absolutely. So they're, A, they're older, but more importantly, the UK PDS trial specifically selected against people with cardiovascular disease. And the primary entry criteria was diabetes, just newly diagnosed diabetes. How were the patients with diabetes treated in the ACCORD trial? I understand there was no specific protocol. There was a hemoglobin A1C goal. But how you got there was up to the investigators? Yeah, there was sort of a general consensus that the initial therapy in the intensive group would be at least two drugs. And the general initial therapy would be metformin, sulfonylureas, glitazones. And then from there, insulin therapy, generally starting with bedtime insulin and progressing to multiple daily injections. Were the majority of the patients eventually treated with insulin? Yeah, I don't remember the number exactly, but uh, on the order of close to 80% of patients were on insulin. And to be honest, 
the most common regimen was multiple daily injections of insulin with metformin, and many of those patients also on a glitazone, and some of those patients also on a sulfonylurea, and some of those patients also on acarbose and alpha-glucosidase inhibitors. So it was not at all unusual for people to be on four injections a day of insulin plus three or four classes of oral drugs. Did the trial achieve hemoglobin A1C levels below 6% in the group that was intensely treated? I think the number was about 30% of patients achieved that target. Overall, the A1C level achieved in the intensive group was 6.4%. And that was significantly lower than the standard therapy group? Yeah, the standard therapy group ended up right where we thought they would be with an A1C of 7.5%. So the difference in A1C was 1.1%. And that difference opened up very quickly in the trial. So one of the issues that's been bandied about a lot is, you know, were some of the outcomes driven by the very rapid lowering of A1C. So they went on average from an A1C of about 8.3 down to 6.4 in the first six months or so of the trial. Now, if that was the case, wouldn't you expect that there would be excess numbers of events real early in the trial? Did that pan out at all, or is it too hard to tell from the data? The events that were in excess were deaths, actually. And those excess events did start emerging in the first year, year and a half of the trial. So I think this is one finding that's not well understood in this trial. There's the primary endpoint, and then there is the overall death rate. And what stopped this trial early was not a problem with the primary endpoint, but with total mortality. Can you explain that to us? how mortality stopped this trial, but not the primary endpoint? Right. So all of these big trials have so-called data safety monitoring boards. So they're a group of clinical scientists, ethicists, epidemiologists that look at unblinded data along with a select group of people from the coordinating center that basically process this data for them. Usually these data safety monitoring boards meet every three to six months. In this case, it was every six months. And what they saw was an increased number of deaths in the intensively treated group, even though overall there seemed to be a reduction in the risks of heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular death. You know, obviously death is the ultimate in potential adverse events. So seeing that emerging trend, they try to do all kinds of analyses, apparently. I mean, I wasn't involved in that, but what what I've been told, all kinds of analyses to try and determine whether this was in a subgroup of patients or whether there was a, you know, clear etiology so that they could, you know, do something other than stop that part of the trial. You know, maybe remove a certain population of patients that seem to be at high risk of death or remove a particular treatment that might be particularly uh, contributing to death. But they were unable to find any cause for this increased risk of death. From what I understand from the analysis that's been published, the increase in death rates stopped this arm of the trial early. But the number of events, and I would presume this would also be the number of deaths that occurred, were lower than expected for this high-risk population. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. So we expected an overall event rate, heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular death on the order of 25 to 3%. And what we actually found was more like 1.5%. And death in particular, both cardiovascular and non-cardiovascular deaths, about half the deaths for cardiovascular deaths, were around 1.1% per year. In this kind of population at such high risk, you know, with 
10 years of diabetes on presentation and an average age of 62, uh, 1% mortality rate was just shockingly low. And I think it reflects the general excellent treatment in these patients. I mean, in general, well-controlled LDL, in general, well-controlled blood pressure, aspirin therapy, beta blockers, et cetera, et cetera. If you are just joining us, you are listening to a special segment on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Matt Sorrentino, and I'm speaking with Dr. John Buse. We are discussing the surprising results of the ACCORD trial, the increased mortality seen in the intense glucose lowering in type 2 diabetes. John, I want to talk more about the primary endpoint. Looking at the paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the primary endpoint shows a very interesting phenomenon. After three years, the intensive therapy group begins to pull away from the standard therapy group. It looks like the intensive therapy group would have had less primary outcome events than the standard therapy group. So there seems to be a disconnect in this trial. We have evidence that there may be some reduction in cardiovascular events, and yet the death rate was higher in the group. Is there an explanation for this, or what accounts for this separation of curves? You know, there really is not an explanation for that. But what the Data Safety Monitoring Board and, you know, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute were the people who finally made the decision to take all the intensive patients and put them in the standard protocol so that we can continue to follow them. You know, what made them do that is that, you know, death trumps non-fatal heart attacks and non-fatal strokes. So, whether it reflects a biological reality, whether it's a fluke, or exactly the mechanism is something that we can't answer. There's just not enough events overall to do all kinds of different sub-analyses. But the best evidence is that this is probably a real effect, that with this very intensive therapy, though on average the group of patients did very, very well, better than we expected, they didn't do as well with regards to death as the standard treatment group, who frankly had a much easier time taking care of their diabetes. So to me, it's a pretty much a no-brainer that at least with the technique of glucose lowering that we were using in this high-risk population, I think the correct decision was made to stop this trial because we were using a very intensive program that was a burden not only to the investigators and our staff, but to the patients. And, you know, though there was a trend towards reduced numbers of heart attacks and strokes, the increased risk of death just made it implausible to continue that randomization. Does the excess number of deaths suggest to you that either some of the therapies that were used may have caused this result? Or could it have been the intensive therapy caused more hypoglycemia, which then led to complications that may be independent of its effect on cardiovascular events? The short answer would be yes. To the extent that we've dug into hypoglycemia as a problem, it doesn't seem to really be the driving force in causing these deaths. But one could imagine how it would be possible that that would be true and we wouldn't be able to tell in our data set. Same thing with the drugs. To the extent that we've been able to dig into it, it doesn't seem like any particular drug or combinations of drugs really cause this increased risk of death, though certainly there are hypotheses how that is possible. I think the other thing that's pretty frequently discussed is that, you know, this was a very intensive program and that, you know, you know particularly among frailer patients or, you know, patients with complex medical problems, you know, there's a possibility that, you know, either the stress of having to deal with this or sort of 
drug-disease interactions could have led to this. The problem is we'll never be able to come up with a definitive answer in this trial. All we can do is generate questions within the trial as to what the cause of these increased deaths was. One of the points mentioned in the paper is there was a significant increase in weight and fluid retention in the intense treatment group. I believe the paper mentioned that 28% of patients had a 10-kilogram or higher weight gain in this trial. Could that have complicated the results? Are we counteracting benefit by using some agents that lead to fluid retention and weight gain? You know, absolutely, that's another one of the hypotheses that exists. You know, it's known that both insulin, which, as I mentioned before, I think 77% of the patients were on insulin, as well as the glitazones and sulfonylureas are associated with weight gain. And there was a higher proportion of people who had weight gain in excess of 10 kilos. But, you know, weight gain occurred in both groups. And to the extent that we've dug around in that issue, that doesn't seem to primarily account for the difference. You know, the problem is that these two groups of patients were treated with, you know, basically the same agents in different intensities. And so almost any parameter that you look for, let's say weight gain, there are some people in the standard group that gain just as much weight as the patients in the intensive group. And with the small number of deaths overall, it's just statistically impossible to tease apart the effect of these individual hypotheses. One of the hypotheses has been questioning the use of TZDs. In the ACCORD trial, rosiglitazone was the TZD that was predominantly used, and over 90% of the intensive therapy patients were on it compared to less than 60% in the standard therapy group. You mentioned earlier the proactive trial, which used a different TZD, pioglitazone, which did show a reduction in cardiovascular endpoints. Could it be that in the ACCORD trial we used the wrong drug? You know, that would remain a hypothesis, but to be honest, this is a question that we looked at very carefully, and the DSMB also looked at it very carefully, you know, particularly around the time of the reporting of the Nissen meta-analysis on rosiglitazone, and there really is no evidence that that's the case in our data set. That doesn't mean that rosiglitazone doesn't have cardiovascular issues. It just means that the way we used it in this trial, you know, in fact, the absolute risk of having a bad event in the rosiglitazone-treated patients was lower, I think because we were very careful not to use it in patients with heart failure. So, again, it's just another hypothesis that we can't answer from this trial. We can compare and contrast the ACCORD trial to the ADVANCE trial, a trial with some similar features. The ADVANCE trial used intensive glucose lowering and looked at vascular outcomes. In the advanced trial, the use of TZDs was extremely low, and yet they also did not find a reduction in cardiovascular endpoints. So I guess that suggests that it's less likely the individual agent is the problem, but there's something about trying to get the hemoglobin A1C down and macrovascular events that we don't really understand at this point. Would that be a fair statement? Absolutely. And just to extend that a bit, so the advanced trial, again, very high-risk cardiovascular population but a much less intensive programming. Basically, the randomization was to give a sulfonylurea drug called gliclozide. It's not available in the United States or not. And then, you know, in that intensive group that got the gliclozide over time, sort of gradually intensifying the therapy. So they also got to an A1C of 6.4%. 
but they didn't start from a baseline of 8.3. They started from a baseline of about 7.5. So they started from a baseline that was equivalent to our standard care group. You know, it's just a much less intensive program. Like you said, no decrease overall in cardiovascular events, sort of trends like we saw in Accord. But importantly, this is the one trial that didn't have any increase in death. There's a third trial that hasn't been published but was presented at the American Diabetes Association meeting called the VA Diabetes Trial. And there, again, very high-risk population treated you know, very intensively. They only got to an A1C of 6.9 in the intensive treatment group. And again, they saw trends towards improvements in cardiovascular outcomes, but nothing statistically significant and you know, pretty modest trends at that. But they also saw numerically greater deaths in the intensive group. So I am of the personal opinion that this kind of very intensive diabetes therapy in high-risk populations you know, are associated with potential harms, including death. So I don't think it's recommended therapy for high-risk elderly patients with diabetes to go on very intensively applied multiple daily injection regimens plus multiple oral agents. In these high-risk patients, is there a particular hemoglobin A1C goal that you would still recommend, or should we loosen the A1C recommendation up a bit in these older, higher-risk individuals? Right. The American Diabetes Association is putting together a group to look at that question, as are other organizations. I think the gestalt that we got at the American Diabetes Association meeting where after the Accord presentation, the VA diabetes trial and the advanced presentation, there was a panel to discuss this issue for a couple hours. And I think there was some consensus there that the A1C target overall of less than 7% is reasonable across the board, but that maybe the caveat is you know, if you have a 65-year-old patient who's previously had a heart attack and their blood pressure and lipids are well-controlled and their A1C is 7.4% on, you know, let's say, glargine, insulin at bedtime, and metformin, that you really need to think twice before you decide to add more injections or add another therapy. There was a hint in these trials that there are some benefits that still could occur with microvascular complications. The advanced trial study group showed an improvement in kidney endpoints. Is there still a role if we can carefully monitor for hypoglycemia of trying to gradually get the A1C down to try to help prevent some of these other very significant morbidities of our patients with diabetes? Absolutely. So neither the VA trial nor Accord has presented their microvascular endpoints. But in advance, there was a statistically significant reduction in microvascular endpoints. You know, the absolute risk there is pretty modest. So as you go from basically good diabetes control to great diabetes control, you do prevent, you know, a few number of microvascular events over a moderate period of time. But again, I think the key is to balance that. And particularly in these older, you know, very high-risk patients, the impact of having, you know, some background diabetic retinopathy or microalbuminuria on sort of functional status over the next 10 to 15 years, which is sort of the best you could hope for with regards to life expectancy, you know, is a bit questionable. In younger patients, I think there's a greater role for, you know, being more aggressive to avoid microvascular complications. And certainly there's a need to look at 
these newer therapies that don't have the same risks of hypoglycemia and weight gain and fluid retention and those sort of things. So I don't know that the Accord Advanced VA trial results really apply to younger patients and to the newer therapies. Will the results of these trials change your practice? You know, I've always sort of been of the school of thought that, you know, basically you treat diabetes with some balance, that, you know, you encourage people to be careful with their diet, to get regular physical activity. You give them a lot of pats and rubs about how difficult it is to care for diabetes. And if they're able to get their A1C down under six, that is fantastic. If they are only able to get their A1Cs into the low sevens, that's good as well. But I've never been one to just sort of flog people with a number saying, well, your A1C is 7.2. We have to get it less than 7. You know, if you're down to 6.9, I'll leave you alone. I think there's really a lot to be said about staying positive in diabetes. It's so easy. You know, so many patients just get burned out with the disease. And really, this is a chronic condition. We need to achieve good blood glucose control over decades as opposed to sort of, you know, flogging people into submission, recognizing that we just can't maintain that level of intensity in most patients over long periods of time. And blood pressure and lipid management and aspirin therapy and smoking cessation is arguably as important, maybe even more important than glucose control. I want to thank Dr. John Buse, who has been our guest on ReachMD. We have been discussing the effects of intensive glucose lowering in type 2 diabetes, the results of the Accord and advanced trials. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino. You have been listening to a special segment of the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening. This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.